haere mai and welcome to Circuit Cast, the podcast about artist moving image. This is the second of two podcasts where we will look at the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on artists working in the moving image. Today, we're looking at how curators and the institutions that they work for have adapted during the pandemic. How has the exhibition and dissemination of artist moving image changed during this time? And will this become the new norm? In the first podcast, I spoke to three artists, and today I'm speaking to three representatives from galleries to hear their thoughts. My guests today are Serena Bentley, who is the curator at ACME, the Australian Centre for the Moving Image in Melbourne. Kia ora, Serena. Kia ora. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. Coming in from Wurundjeri country today. And I'd also like to welcome in Tamaki Makoto, the curator and editor Tendai Mutambu. Kia ora, Tendai. Kira Thomason, thanks for having me. And finally, I'd like to welcome from Namotsu, New Plymouth, the Gavette Brewsters Curator of Public Education, Lisa Burnt. Kia ora, Lisa. Kia ora, Kaito. Lovely to be here. Tendai, I might put you in the hot seat first, if that's okay. You are currently a curator at Te Uru Waitakere Contemporary Gallery in Auckland, but in 2019, you were the Programming Fellow at the Berwick Film and Media Arts Festival in the UK. This is a festival that staged screenings in public spaces right across this small town. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how the festival presented works pre-pandemic. It seems quite key to the festival's identity that its audience occupied Berwick's very idiosyncratic public space. Yeah, of course. So I joined the team in, in Berwick, as you mentioned, in 2019 as a programming fellow, which was created as, as a training opportunity for early career curators and programmers. And Berwick in its 17th edition this year has really been located in that, in that North England town that you mentioned. And it often makes use of the spaces that, that are often disused or kind of transitional small civic spaces like the town hall and the place itself. Berwick has a really interesting history, a kind of contested geography, if you will between Scotland and England, and it has all these kind of fortifications all around. So it's sort of scenic and, and picturesque. It's a lovely setting to have a film festival, actually, particularly for people from really major cities all across Europe. The idea is that it's a kind of a destination event, really. And something about the scenery and the setting really allows you to kind of be immersed in, in the moving image and discussions about it and, and watching and experiencing it. So... I guess pre-pandemic, they were really making the most of those those venues, screening all across the city, all across the town, and you know, forging different collaborations with small businesses and organizations and so on. And then sort of into the pandemic, they had to make the most of a kind of an online platform. So they showed their previous edition of the festival. So last year's edition was shown entirely online. And so this year they've decided to do a kind of a dual offering. So I think what the situation's presented is, is an opportunity to think about the, I guess, the benefits of, of both of those, those ways of showing or presenting the moving image. Yeah, I wondered if you um, had any thoughts on that. Do you think the work's kind of gained or lost anything in the online space? Yeah, so I've attended the, the physical editions and then I've also attended the one online. I think there was a really strong focus on accessibility when the festival went online um, in terms of closed captioning and a kind of, you know, audio descriptions, all the different mechanisms that are available to make the moving image online as, as widely available as possible. Mm-hmm. And I think that was something that once 
they'd sort of cultivated for that edition last year, they really wanted to hold on to as a significant part of their offering. So I think it really benefited from that. And obviously, there is the great loss of not being able to share space with people to be in the same room. I think it's one of the great benefits of the cinema is that so much of the world just gets left outside and really you're just focused on that viewing experience with other bodies in a space. So I guess obviously that was like a definite loss. So I'm glad to hear that this year they can have both a kind of in-person physical iteration and then something online as well. Mm. Serena, I wonder if I could bring you in here. Uh, You're a New Zealand curator based in Melbourne. And I believe over the past year, you've been programming for this new dedicated online space called Gallery 5, which presents streamed performances and moving image works. I wondered, is Gallery 5 intended to be ongoing for ACME or is it going to be a kind of temporary initiative? The sentiment is that it will be ongoing and it's sort of emerged out of a renewal that the organisation's been through over the past couple of years. So we received funding from the state government to revitalise our exhibition spaces And as part of that, we created a new permanent exhibition called The Story of the Moving Image. And a part of that exhibition is a new piece of technology called The Lens, which is basically a little card reader that you can take with you into the exhibition and you can tap on special labels and you're essentially collecting information about the objects in the exhibition, which is unlocked into greater forms of material online when you've finished visiting the gallery. So as part of the renewal, we were really thinking about our organisation as a multi-platform museum. So we don't want to operate exclusively within the physical space, but we want to operate online as well, kind of emulating people's journeys through a museum. You know, we go to a museum with our friends, we check out some shows, and then afterwards we might go home and, you know, sit down on your phone and scroll through some things that you've taken photos of or, you know, you want to learn more about what you've seen. So I guess it was about kind of picking up and harnessing those sort of behaviours through these new technologies. And as part of that, that's how Gallery 5 emerged. And also we have an online cinema as well called Cinema 3, which is programmed by our film programming team. But the idea is that both Cinema 3 and Gallery 5 are part of our ongoing multi-platform offer as a museum. What was your process like for commissioning for Gallery 5? Yes, well, the process was quite organic, (laughs) which is kind of the vibe at Acme. And so Gallery 5 was an initiative that came from our director, Katrina Sedgwick. And so there were people that she particularly wanted to work with as we implemented this new space. I think also in terms of programming, one of the things that we're interested in doing with this online space is that we have a greater degree of agility to program more immediately than we do in our exhibition spaces. Mm -hmm. And so as a part of our programming strategy, it's about making it more event-based and attaching ourselves to events or organisations or individuals that we want to work with. So one of the tricky things at ACME is that, you know, despite being a large organisation, we are in some ways limited by our physical exhibition spaces. So we've got our permanent exhibition, we've got a large gallery space, which is where we have our sort of blockbuster shows, and then we have a smaller gallery space, which is for more project-based exhibitions and where we show some of our commissions because we do a lot of commissioning. And so, yeah, Gallery 5 is an opportunity for us to establish relationships with artists that we're interested in, cultivating relationships with. As far as strategies for programming go, it's becoming more formalised as we move forward. There were kind of a couple of artists right at the start that we really wanted to grab and work with. So the very first project that we did was with Lu Yang, who's an artist based in China, and that was a project 
uh, done in collaboration with the Art Centre and Asia Topa Festival, which was event-based. So it was tied to the Asia Topa Festival and it was a live-streamed event of a dancer in Shanghai who sort of adopted all of these mythical personas and you had the opportunity as an audience member to type into a live chat as the performance happened. But going forward, we're actually very excited to be working with Circuit next on the first of, we hope, uh, maybe a series of annual commissions. And so we'll be working with Laura Duffy to create a new work. And again, I guess that reflects our sentiments for Gallery 5, which is to you know align ourselves with organisations and artists that we're interested in working with. Lisa, I had a question for you to weave you into the corridor. When I was preparing, actually, for this podcast, I saw that the Gavette Brewster had recently released this really impressive virtual tour of Brett Graham's exhibition, Tai Moana Tai Tangata, which was exhibited at the gallery earlier in the year. There's the Beric model, which is a kind of single-channel works that are streamed, kind of like a Netflix movie. Then the commissions in Gallery 5 that Serena's been working on. But the Brett Graham tour is quite different in that it attempts to map out the kind of spatial characteristics of being in the exhibition. And you can turn and see the sculpture behind the video works, for example. I wondered if you could just tell us what prompted the production of the tour and how involved Brett Graham was in putting it together. I mean, first of all, it was such a powerful exhibition in our spaces. And we knew that the content of the exhibition was so relevant in a local context that from the very beginning my team which is the public engagement and also education team we knew that we wanted to expand it beyond its sort of life in the gallery Mm -hmm. so in some way you could say maybe it's unusual that the impetus came sort of from the education side not necessarily from the curators or the artist himself But, of course, it meant we we very tightly worked together. And it really was a very collaborative project, all in all, and a very high trust model. I mean, we've worked with Brett Graham for a long time. I mean, he was the artist in residence in 2019. You know, he created the show. We actually had to postpone the show for a whole year because of COVID. So there was already a really long kind of existing relationship beforehand with him and also with the curator Anna-Marie White which then extended into the virtual tour space so it was between Brett Graham, Anna-Marie White and then our education team that's Rebecca and then also actually our partners at Pukiariki because they had just released a virtual tour earlier last year and I approached them and said look would you help us can you partner with us to actually make the first virtual tour that the Gower Brewster has released ever happen. The starting point came sort of from our team and then it was a very high trust model from Brett and also NRE and I think that is because we already had this ongoing relationship. Mm -hmm. So we regularly checked in with them but the production really was sort of coming from our side in collaboration with all these people that I've just mentioned before and also very closely with other people for example, Whare Hukawano from the Taranaki Iwi Trust, and he's also a member of our Whiringa Tui partnership group, and also with Ting Onaya, who usually translates a lot of our exhibition wall texts, etc. But this time around, with the wall texts, they weren't translated. They were actually 
texts in their own right. So I guess it was all those key relationships that were already established for the gallery that then kind of came together to produce the virtual tour. Talking about the text is really interesting because you mentioned that the virtual tour was developed for an education audience specifically. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you made that decision and how you worked with the production company of the virtual tour to make that happen. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think that was one of the first things that when I had conversations with Nicholas von Kukiariki, when we talked about, if we think about a virtual tour, how are we going to go about it? And he said, you know, be very clear about your target audience and what your focus is. I mean, I think throughout sort of the pandemic, we've seen lots of virtual tours go online, especially kind of when we first, you know, went into lockdown. Um, and we thought, well, we're not just going to put another virtual tour out there because if you don't have a really a purpose behind it, it can be quite flat very quickly. So I think it was kind of from our point of view, but also syncing with Anna Marie, because she was always very clear that the exhibition itself really was a great platform for having an educational kind of purpose. Mm -hmm. So I think that kind of crystallised very quickly that we're going to have sort of students, teachers, schools as our focus. And from there, like you said, we develop the material. And I guess the great opportunity is with the virtual tour that we had is that we could include material that wasn't included in the exhibition. So like you mentioned, I mean, there's material like further images of illustrations. There is images of how Brett created the work. And there's also focus questions. So teachers can use it as a starting point for conversations. Yeah, and I think all the material that's there, I mean, at the moment is the most comprehensive view of the exhibition as it existed because the catalogue isn't out yet and in a way of, of researching what the exhibition was. I have a kind of general question for you and anyone can leap in. I just wondered if you thought during the last kind of 18 months to two years, how do you think audiences have responded to this move to have more work in the online space in the various kind of modes that we've talked about already? Um, I can speak to my experience as an audience member uh, mm -hmm. in terms of how my behaviours have changed. I don't know if I do feel a desire for more online content. I don't know if you all agree with that, but I'm actually incredibly selective with what I choose to engage with now because we've spent so much time on screens. If I don't have to be on a screen, I will go away from it most happily. Like, I think I'm going to have like a trauma response to opening Zoom when this is over pretty much. <laughs> so there has to be something quite, it has to be an enticing proposition for me to spend more time at my computer. And so interestingly, with what um, Lisa was saying about what happened at the Gavit Brewster, I think those very carefully fabricated physical tours within the virtual space are something that's enticing to me because what I miss the most, one of the things I miss the most is physically being in an, ex in an exhibition space and engaging with the works in space and seeing them in relationship to one another and also having the autonomy to move through those spaces the way I want to. And so, for instance, there have been shows that I really wanted to see, like everyone in Australia wanted to fly up to Sydney and see the Helmet of Klimt show, which was open for two weeks, I think, before it got shut down. And so when there was an online offer for that show, I was like, yes, I'm onto this. And mm -hmm. then I went to their website and it was actually a kind of recording of a walk through, through the space. And for me, 
that's not really what I wanted. I didn't want to kind of be sitting there watching a video. And so, yes, this tour at the Gavit Brewster is a great example of, I think, how an audience member can engage with things online. Or similarly, very sadly, <laughs> I curated a, an independent show um, at Murray Art Museum in Albury that, again, was open for a few weeks and was shut down. And it's all just sitting there now. But they use that same technology. I think it's like real estate technology, isn't it, where you can kind of map your journey through a space. And so, again, that was an opportunity for me to walk through a space that I actually probably won't ever visit. So those kind of unique offers, I think, are really enticing. But in terms of just more content, it's not enough of a grab for me. But I don't know how you all feel about that. Yeah, I agree with that. Oh, sorry, you go, Tinda. I was just going to say, I mean, after um, spending, I guess, the last 12 to 18 months in in lockdown in the UK, I have reached that point that Serena mentioned of, of being like, you know, if I don't have to experience something online, I'd rather not, really. And I guess, yeah, the question becomes the purpose is like how how conducive is that platform, is that forum for the work that you're doing. I mean, it emerges initially out of necessity because we can't be, we can't experience this stuff in person. But I guess as things start to open up again, um, as they they have recently in the UK, there is a question of whether, you know, how many of those things do you want to cultivate and continue? And how many of those emerged as a kind of a response to an emergency? And I think for the most part, there has been kind of an influx of, of material online to the point where it, it sort of exhausts audiences. I mean, I think they're sort of very happy to have, I mean, one, to have something signal the kind of the, the quality of the content that's out there, something that sort of signal boosts what's worth giving attention to because there's just so much that's available to you. But also, yeah, I just just also like some opportunity to step back and and get back to experiencing things I guess, in the round and physical spaces. And as you pointed out, Serena, you're on your own terms rather than having it sort of dictated in terms of how you might go through an exhibition or, you know, how might you, how you might watch a, a film or something along those lines. Some of these um, online experiences that are kind of engineered to help us through these times, I find actually make me miss what we're missing more if that makes sense and so I think back to um oh god I don't know what lockdown it was maybe the second one here when Nick Cave released an online concert Mm. called Idiot Prayer and I mean I liked him when I was a teenager I'm not really that into him now but I'm like oh my god this is an event you know it's an online event-based concert I've never been to one of these before this is so exciting <laughs> like you know I was already I had I was going with a friend we bought tickets it was like $40 or something which is insane and I had my glass of wine I was sitting here in the night and you know I had my phone ready to text my friend we started watching this concert together it was just so profoundly deflating it was probably one of the most distressing moments of the pandemic for me <laughs> because I realized that so much of what we miss, um, as Tina was talking about, like being in the theatre, is that physical connection when we're physically together experiencing something. And when that's removed and you're trying to create alternatives, like my friend and I were messaging one another and while we were watching the concert and it's like, oh, oh my God, is this like going to take over from, you know, when you're yelling at one another at a gig and mm-hmm. you can't really hear and you're sort of talking, it's like, is this it for us now? And it was just so 
distressing. I can't tell you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I also feel like, you know, you don't have the same sense of immersion. So apart from going with other people, that same sense of immersion in a space and actually feeling it with your body and how your body relates to the space that you're in. Um, I think that's something that you kind of easily lose online. And of course, with a virtual tour, you can only recreate it to a degree. And I guess that's where, I mean, from my perspective, where you really need to see them as completely different spaces and not, you know, you can't translate one format just to an online format. You really have to see it as its own space and work with it in that way to then hopefully create something that people can enjoy. Yeah, and hopefully kind of avoid that sadness or melancholy that Serena's talking about where you feel like there's a real lack of something. It's really interesting because we, um, that this is a podcast and that's like a, as a format that we talked about when I was at Spike Island with public programming because we're having so much stuff, so much visual, audiovisual content for people to view online and we realised that maybe we wanted to pivot to use that term to <laughs> um, you know when the pivot becomes a spiral in that sense but like we thought we would shift to doing more audio based content either like sound commissions with artists or doing podcasts something about the that format just seemed to like offer a moment of respite from sitting in front of the screen staring at either staring back at your image or watching people in that awkward kind of way or yeah, even just watching films on a tiny screen as well. I just think the mobility that that audio allowed you to have, like you could sort of do it in transit, not that you were going far, really. Mm. But it was, um, yeah, it was definitely a way out. Looking up and looking out somewhere else. Uh, Lisa, I had another quick question about the um, Tai Moana Tai Tangata virtual tour. What was your invo- with the involvement of Tangata Whenua in the production of the tour? Because I noticed that there's a karakia to welcome you when you open it up as we would have to welcome a group into a physical space? Yeah, I guess it really started with the exhibition itself. I mean, you know, the project was driven by Brett Graham and Anna-Marie White and Tikanga was obviously, you know, a huge important part of the exhibition itself. The opening was kind of, I think, one of the most magical moments I've experienced since working here at the Rest Art Gallery. And we had hundreds of people, you know, doing karakia and waiata in the space when we opened. And it was really, it felt like the gallery really handed over the space. It wasn't really our space anymore. And at the same time, it was a huge learning for us as staff because we prepared for weeks learning the waiata that were relevant to the exhibition. So um, the relationships had with Tangata Whenua had really come in, obviously, with Brett Graham and Anna Marie, but also the key relationships that the gallery has, like I mentioned, Wafari Gawana before from Taranaki Ibi Trust, um, but also um, Te Inonaya. So I think it was mainly the key relationships that already existed that we then kind of collaborated with the same people for the virtual tour. So in, in a sense, it was kind of integral to the project, not necessarily to the virtual tour, but again, we try to really bring that into the digital space. And the idea of the karakia, in a sense, came from Brett Graham himself saying, you know, how can we welcome people to the space, kind of 
in a sense, similar to a, a forfeit, or how do we achieve that? And he really recommended, okay, can you talk to Pareo Kawano again? Uh, you know, what's kind of appropriate? Because obviously it has to be people from here welcoming into the space. So it was Pareo Kawano who then kind of developed and also spoke the karakia that you hear at the beginning of the virtual tour. And it was kind of also thinking, of course, of the technical aspects that you have the karakia that you actually can't go around. You know, if you kind of go through it to really kind of enter the space and be welcomed into the space. And I've seen it also in other projects that kind of are inspiring, like uh, Rachel Rapina, the Mana Moana, where you sort of have a similar kind of welcome into the space. And that's, yeah, what also inspired us. Mm. Serena, I had a quick kind of collection question for you. I wondered about the role of Acme's collection during the pandemic. Has there been a push to digitise more works or make more available online from from the collection? Uh, yes, I mean, again, that's something that's happening regardless of um, the pandemic. So we've actually got a digital preservation lab where we're constantly working at archiving the collection or archiving materials within the collection. So that's sort of part of ACME's larger remit across the board. We incorporate the home movies in our collection into our permanent exhibition, and we're actually looking at creating a standalone exhibition about those home movies that will occur in the future as well. So they're often incorporated in quite creative ways. So there's an experiential part of our new permanent exhibition called Monument Garden, which is sort of a big design feature, which is a sort of series of elongated lights that you walk through. And if you put your hands beneath the lights, um, they actually reveal home movies from the collection that you kind of hold in the palm of your hands. So, yeah, we're constantly thinking about different ways that we can utilise that material. And Tinda, I had a kind of general question for you. I wondered about the kind of labour of producing um, moving image works, and I wondered whether you kind of felt like people had an increasing expectation that they could get access to things for free online and um, whether or yeah, whether or not that kind of elides the labour of producing moving image works, whether or not that's a good or a bad thing. Yeah, I think that that's a really important question to address. I think having conversations with a few filmmaker or artist filmmaker friends over the pandemic, it became kind of clear that well, there's one particular artist friend who has some of his work available online, mm-hmm. and he's often been asked, you know, why he chooses to make certain work available and others not. And I think over the years, he's really just been trying to figure out what is the best way to make his work as widely available whilst you're honouring the fact that obviously it takes, you know, time and effort to produce. And he was saying, I think something about the kind of the ease of the availability, especially towards the start of the, the pandemic, the kind of, like I mentioned, that kind of influx of content just made, just meant that people weren't actually spending time with the work, really, which wasn't an argument, I think, for like some so kind of crudely imposed scarcity, you know, just to like, for example, intentionally making things expensive or inaccessible just for the sake of creating some kind of, yeah, some sense of value. Yeah. But what he was saying is that I think when there is that effort that one has to make to go and seek things out, I think it ensures that there's a more of a kind of a, a more thoughtful uh, and a more sort of like considered engagement with the work. And so that's something that I've been thinking about a lot in terms of how we make things available and also what like I said we signal the value of what's what's sort of worthy of our viewers and our audience's attentions and in another aspect of labor I think that's sort of come to the fore is just thinking about art workers in general right I mean ways of making a living have been you know pretty tough 
barely existent for many art workers at the best of times. And then of course you bring in the the kind of precarity that's amplified with it, with the pandemic and lockdowns and furlough schemes and so on. And it's no surprise that you've seen or that we've seen, you know, a rise in numbers of, you know, people being laid off, people losing work and so on and so forth. And in particular in the UK, you saw with, um, with Tate in particular, the response that came to, or that came out as a response to the redundancies that were made, significant redundancies made in the hundreds. Mm. And most of those were workers who were, you know, front of house and doing all the kind of material work to, to make like, you know, to present work in the, in the cinema, for example. So I think there's something about the current condition that's made it very difficult to ignore, really, the kind of work, the labour and efforts that it takes us to, to sustain the arts. Yeah, I'm trying to, to, to work in ways that kind of, that honour a certain ethic in terms of how we, we understand people's value, mm. um, the value of their labour. And I think it's becoming more and more evident that there's just certain ways of working that are not sustainable. They really haven't been for a while, but now more than ever seem to be in, uh, incredibly untenable. So I'm taking that as a kind of something hopeful, I think, that it's forcing us to address the conditions of how how work is made and how we mm. how we respond to the to the current climate. Yeah, thank you. That's that's really important to think about that that the, all those conditions that have been really thrown into relief, as you suggest, by the pandemic. You're in Tamaki Makoto now, but you're still working for UK institutions and curating. Even though we can't obviously travel much in person at the moment, do you think that the pandemic has kind of accelerated the sort of global curator model whereby, you know, curators can be anywhere curating programs for institutions all over the place? Yeah, I mean, just speaking from experience, it's, um, it's something that I've been able to, to utilise this model that you're describing, um, of being able to, to do work overseas. And I guess one of the benefits is that I you know, don't physically have to be there, which, you know, means sort of less of a environmental material strain on, you know, on me or the organizations I, I, I work with and, and so on and so forth. So there is that opportunity just to collaborate from great distances. And yeah, working on these opportunities has allowed kind of a circulation of ideas to take place um, in a time when people haven't been able to go and see the work. You can bring the work to them mm-hmm. to some extent. And you can still be part of certain conversations. I think New Zealanders are very attuned to this, really, right? We have a sense of an understanding that we are in some in a geographical sense, I guess, quite far from so many other places and so on. So there is always that kind of awareness of how to connect and how to stay in touch and attuned to what's going on elsewhere. Mm. So I think there is definitely like a, more of a growing interest in that way of working as well but then again you obviously as i mentioned touching on the kind of the, um, the more kind of socioeconomical material side of things is how to make that sustainable in a way because i think a lot of the opportunities that arise out of this kind of way of working are quite precarious in terms of trying to make a living out of them they're the kinds of things that that help you build on 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 them in some way, one opportunity begets another and so on. But um, in terms of creating a sort of a long-term sustainable career, it's, it, it's, it becomes kind of difficult. So I'm quite fortunate to be able to have, you know, sort of a solid three-day-a-week job that kind of allows me to, to sustain a living. 
Mm. And I think also we sort of take a bit for granted that the support structure, I was just talking to Serena about, I'm in the office today, um, now that we're at level two, and Serena was saying how much she missed being in an office. And I think some of those support structures that support us as people in our professional lives may not be completely evident as we kind of go through the day-to-day life of office work. But as soon as you kind of take them away, that precarity of sort of mental health and sustainability of work that you're talking about, Tendai, I think becomes more evident. And also the internal life of working by yourself, if you're just at home by yourself or with a partner or a wider family even, it is more of an internal space than working in an office environment. Lisa, I had a kind of slightly uh, segue question, but I wondered about the longevity of the virtual tour. I'm often thinking about digital preservation and the longevity of digital artifacts that have a lot of resources gone into. And I wondered if your team had had any thoughts about ensuring that the virtual tour has a life into the future, to the digital future. Well, I can't talk about the technical side of things because that's really kind of uh, completely (laughs) beyond my expertise, Um, but I'm sure we can make that happen in in some shape or form. I mean, it's interesting because I was just talking to Nicholas from Pukiariki, who was helping us um, really with the technical realisation of the tour, and... um, he looked at their first tour and said, oh, my God, it's already so outdated. It's, you know, a year old in terms of I need to go back and really update it. And I'm sure, you know, in some shape or form that will also happen with our tour. But I'm hoping in terms of the content that it has actually sort of, a, because it is, you know, it was really thorough that it will mean it's an enduring resource that hopefully schools will use not only locally but also nationally. Again, that's, I guess that's hopefully where you see sort of the amount of effort that has gone into the production of it. But it doesn't mean it will always stay this way, of course. We always call it our first iteration, so it might also have a second iteration and we might choose to, you know, add further material to it or further layers. I mean, the Brett Graham exhibition, when we had it here for a few months, we felt like we could easily have it for another few months, you know, in terms of the potential for public programming, but also the educational kind of um, side of things. It just has so many layers to explore that, yeah, we might, you know, look at this and kind of really maybe explore different angles that we haven't explored with this kind of iteration of the tour. I think one of the strengths that it really has, and that, of course, also goes coincides with the change of the New Zealand history curriculum Mm. is that probably will be used, you know, as a resource in that realm. And the beauty of, I guess, looking at these stories and histories from an artistic and creative side is that it gives you a completely different access. It gives you an emotional end to these stories, whereas I feel like often, you know, history is so kind of fact-based and then, of course, you're always thinking about, well, from which perspective is this history really told yeah that we really hope it's going to be picked up as a resource for looking at history in that way and that will have longevity because its content is so relevant and the exhibition was looking at you know it was looking at the past it was looking at the present and it was looking at the future and the themes that are in the exhibitions like i said i mean there are so many but if you think of of course you know starting in the past with the land wars and land confiscation but then looking into the future, we're thinking about our environmental problems. You know, it's sort of based on the same themes of 
greed and exploitation of resources. And um, so I think because the themes are so global and what's the word that I'm looking for? Um, global, but also kind of they, they're not going to lose their relevance anytime soon. Sadly. Sadly. Yeah. yeah, that's really interesting, the idea that the virtual tour can become more and more multi-layered as it progresses into the future. And you can, I guess that's the flexibility of digital technology. You can add in bits and pieces and change the interpretation and it can build as a resource over time. Serena, I had one more question for you. I was thinking about the hierarchies of the art world and I wondered whether the pandemic had sort of shifted these a little bit in the sense that maybe having an online exhibition of streaming work maybe had been seen as kind of secondary to a gallery installation um, in the past. And I wondered whether you thought that had kind of shifted and whether it will continue kind of shifting in the future. I think that's a very interesting question when I'm just thinking about two projects that I'm negotiating at the moment, one which was to be physical and one which was to be online. I think if you're an artist who wants to have your work shown now in Australia, then that online position is desirable because uh, mm. we can continue with our re plans regardless of what's happening. I guess. Um, you know, there's a term that's used a lot, I'm not sure if it's used a lot in New Zealand at the moment now, but when it comes to programming, pivoting, you know, we're constantly pivoting, like, but we're not pivoting anymore, we're spiralling like this. <laughs> and so um, I'm working with another artist called Taliana, who was a recipient of um, the Mordant VR Commission, which is a major $80,000 commission that he began in 2019 and that was meant to be shown earlier this year then was meant to be shown in October and now will probably be shown in 2023. It, for him, uh, that work was always conceived of for a physical space. Um, and so that was a, a real desire for him to that work, for that work to be realised in a physical exhibition space. But, you know, in contrast, we've just started speaking with Laura Duffy about realising a new work that will go online on the 1st of December, you know, regardless. And um, I think there's a real ease to this way of working online at the moment that does make it desirable and gives it a different kind of momentum and certainty. And we can speak with confidence about what it is that we're doing together, which is so... I don't even know if I have the words for it. It's just such a pleasure to be able to speak about something that is going to happen at a particular time. Whereas, you know, poor Tully, you know, this is a project that, you know, will be three, four years in the making. And there's a certain fatigue that goes with working on something mm. for that long as well. You know, this is something that he expected would be a year of his life that's stretching and stretching and stretching. So it changes an artist's relationship to their work too. It's like, you know, when you're writing something for too long and you can't see it anymore. So um, I think at the moment, perhaps it's changed the hierarchy, but I don't know, people do love showing exhibition spaces, right? <laughs> yeah, we, I talked to artist Yona Lee for the previous podcast, who is an artist who has been showing a lot of international biennials and has been at the Give It Restrict, who talked about her digital artist residency there. Um, and she was planned to go and do a bunch of international residencies and asked her about her work life and she said you know I've just kind of stopped planning and it just seemed like a very highly stressful situation to be in and I really felt for her 
this just constant renegotiation of her professional existence, essentially. Mm. I actually just thought of Yona Lee as well, and I know you've, you've spoken to her because, yeah, as you said, last year we had to change our artisan residents to become digital artisan residents sort of in their own home. But I just thought that the outcomes were quite different. So we had three artisan residents and Yona Lee was one and she had obviously an online um you know, presence as an outcome. But the other two, I mean, one showed in our open window, which was still, you know, viewable even during the closure of the gallery. And the other one was on billboards in town. So in some way, even though it was a digital residence, the outcome was quite different and some still had a physical presence in the city, but maybe not, you know, inside the gallery. So it's also kind of interesting to look at, again, those hybrids where it can sort of be a mix of having a physical presence as well as an online presence. Cool. Well, thanks very much, everybody. Unless anybody has anything further they would like to add, I think that's the end of all my questions that I've been peppering you with. So, Na Mihi Maiaha for joining me today. And also thank you very much to our listeners for their attention. Circuit Cast is a production of Circuit Artist Film and Video Aotearoa New Zealand. And we are funded by Creative New Zealand, Toy Aotearoa, you can find Circuit Cast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on Stitcher, so keep an eye out for our next episode. Namahi. Mm-hmm.